0: AJ made a joke that I should fall over, and then I really did. <clears throat> um, well, I'm excited to be here. Brandy and I were out of town last weekend in Cincinnati. It's good to be back. Um, I'm really excited about the goals that were surpassed for the Walk for Life. Brandy and I were actually, uh, Brandy and, and baby Lucy and I were supposed to walk I'm on crutches, and I got sick when we were in Cincinnati, and I passed it on to Brandy. She was in bed all day yesterday. Ironically, baby Lucy took her first steps this weekend, so she was the only one who could walk yesterday. Okay, well, I've got a lot to cover here, so I'm gonna gonna jump in. We're gonna be looking today at Ephesians 6, verses 1 through 9, and if you have your bulletin, you've got the text there. and this is going to be, we're rounding third. We're, we're still in our Ephesians series breaking out, but this is the last chapter in Ephesians, so it's getting close to the end. So I'll, I'll read our passage for us. <clears throat> children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger. But bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Bondservants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart, as you would Christ, not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bondservants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he's a bondservant or is free masters, do the same to them. And stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and that there is no partiality with him. This is the word of the Lord. You, pray with me. God, it is so good to be here together gather with our heavenly family, to sing your praises, to hear your word. I pray that you would have your hand on me, your speaker, this morning. I pray that you would enlighten the eyes of our hearts to be able to hear your word and hear what your plan for the new humanity, for the household of God is. And pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So when I think something really awesome has happened, like I hear something cool or someone makes a good point, I always do this. So like, <clears throat> for example, if... Thomas Martucci were to actually win at crazy cards, right? I would, I would do that. So has anyone, have you seen anybody do that before or can anybody do that? So I don't know what it's called, but for the purpose of this sermon, I named it the snuff slap or snuff snap, because I think it started with like people who dip, they do that with their can. And I don't know if it actually does anything or if it just looks cool, but it actually, if you want to tutorial after this for a small charge I can teach you, but it actually takes a long time to learn how to do it. And you look really stupid when you're learning because you just do this a lot. The way I learned how to do this in the mid 2000s, I worked at Restoration Hardware. A few sermons ago, I told a story about how I worked in the stockroom at Restoration Hardware. So basically, Um, When no one was watching me or asking me to bring out, you know, 600 thread count sheets or anything like that, I would just piddle around in the stock room listening to NPR and learning to do that. So in other words, I was a terrible employee. And I I tell you that with a bit of humor, but as I look back on it, I'm not proud of my attitude. Because when I was working at Restoration Hardware, I was supposed to be a full-time musician, and I didn't want to work this $8 $8 an hour job when I was off the road. It wasn't my plan A, it was, it was like my plan Q. So the amount of effort that I put into my work was equal to the amount of passion that I had for the job. But in First Peter 3, the Apostle Peter tells us to always be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. But the truth is, no one at Restoration Hardware saw any hope in me. I worked there for several years on and off And I don't think I made any difference. I don't know if anyone there even realized that I was a Christian. As I look back on it, I'm almost hopeful that they didn't because there was nothing in me that was set apart that would make them think, what's the answer for the hope that guy has? And I tell you all this to say that using company time to learn how to do this snap-snap is pretty much the antithesis of what Paul was calling the Ephesians to do in this passage. He was teaching them a new way to be human. So in the first part of Ephesians, he is explaining the glory of the gospel. And he's painting this picture that it's this beautiful family of God. And it's not based on bloodlines or ethnicity. It's not just Jews. It's Jews, Gentiles, it's everyone. And it's not based on race. It's based on the bond that we have as adopted sons and daughters of the Lord God Almighty, which is good news. And he was telling them, correct doctrine to believe. He was telling them how they were supposed to see themselves in relation to God. But then in chapter four, there's kind of a transition and it goes from Paul telling the Ephesians, telling us what we should believe to what we should actually do. And he starts kind of broadly. He tells us, put off your old self. And he goes on to tell us, be renewed in the spirit of your minds, put on the new self. And that Greek word for self there is anthropos. It's where we get the word anthropology, and anthropology is either a hip, expensive women's clothing store that your wife likes, or it's the study of humans, the study of people. So anthropos is translated self in the ESV, but it can also be translated as man or mankind or humans, and basically what Paul is getting at is that followers of Christ are a new humanity, There's a new way to be human. And Ephesians is all about what it means to be a new human in Christ, a new family. And so at the end of chapter five, Paul starts to get more practical. And you might remember last week, Pete was preaching on the end of chapter five, and he was talking to husbands and wives. And then the passage that we're looking at today, he's discussing children and parents, and bondservants and masters. So Paul's talking about day-to-day life for these first century Romans. And he's talking about the household. And if you're like me, you're like, where the heck do slaves and masters fit in with that? And I promise we're gonna get to that. But uh, the point is, he's talking about the household. And he gives four commands in our passage today. Um, So there's gonna be four points to my sermon. And I'm calling them house rules. And the emphasis is not so much on the rules as it is the house. Because as the family of God, we're in the household of God. And this is how we're to live as new humans in the household of God. Not according to the culture in first century Rome. Not according to the culture in 21st century America. But we're we're basing our house rules on Christ's radical culture of love and humility. So the four house rules seem fairly straightforward if you just like read through them real quick. But if you start to ponder them, they raise a lot of questions and I'm gonna try to hopefully shine some light on that. But we're gonna start with the children. In verse one, Paul begins, children, obey your parents in the Lord for this is right. That's the first house rule. And when you hear children, you might think of like four-year-olds or you might think of the kids that are in the nursery or the kids that are in O-kids. But actually, if you think about it, Paul intended for this letter to be read out loud in the churches, in Ephesus and the surrounding churches. And he's been talking about the Trinity and the doctrine of election and these big, robust themes. And you think who, which children are able to track with that? It's more the older kids, right? It's like the kids who are in this room, middle schoolers and high schoolers. So this has to do with all of us. So kids, if you're in this room, I'm talking to you. He tells the kids, obey your parents. And he adds, in the lord. Cuz we all know there's a way that you can obey but like grudgingly where you're like Duh. you can do that or you can you can obey just so that you can get something or just so that you can avoid a punishment. But there's a new way, a Christian way to obey in the lord. And this idea undergirds all of the house rules. What Paul is saying is that if you obey your parents in the lord, you're actually obeying the Lord himself. And then in verse two, Paul cites the fifth commandment, honor your father and mother. And we're gonna come back to that in just a minute. But we're called to obey our parents when we're children and we're living in our parents' home. So as long as you live under their roof, you're to obey their rules, even if you don't agree with them. So children who live with your parents, I'm talking to you. Sometimes your parents want you to do things that you don't like and that don't make sense to you. And sometimes you may think it's not fair or right. But consider that as part of the family of God, you can obey them not because you agree, but because you can see it as obeying Jesus Christ himself. The exception of this is if obeying them requires disobeying God. So if you think about Jonathan in the Old Testament, his dad was Saul, the first king of Israel. And Saul wasn't a great dad, but even into adulthood, Jonathan was obedient and honored his father until he asked him to sin against David, who was Jonathan's best friend, but also God's anointed. And at that point, he did not obey his father. His allegiance was to God. So God's intent for the family is that fathers and mothers are going to be wise and loving guides to children, and they're going to help us to learn and grow. But unfortunately, that's not always the case. So if you find yourself in a situation where you can't obey your parents without being being disobedient to God, you need to pray and ask, what does it mean to obey God in this situation? And it may be that your parents ask you to do something illegal. Maybe they ask you to do something that would be hurtful to someone else. Maybe you can't put your finger on it, but something just doesn't feel right about it. Maybe your parent is hurting you. And I want to tell you, if that's the case, you don't have to be alone in this because you have the family of God as your community. So I encourage you, if you find yourself in this weird situation, tell one of the pastors here, tell me, tell a guidance counselor, talk to an adult that you trust, who cares about you, because you don't have to be alone in this. Proverbs says that wisdom is crying out in the street, so we just have to seek it out. The hope and the prayer is that you do have parents who love you and do their best to lead you in the right way. And as long as you're in their home, Paul says you're to obey them. When we leave home, we're still always called to honor our father and mother, because that's the fifth commandment. That's what Paul is referencing in verse two. And as adults... What it means to honor our father and mother, it looks a little different than just being obedient when you're seven or eight years old. As adults, we honor our parents by showing them gratitude, by checking in on them, by praying for them. It might require forgiving them for something that they did to hurt you that maybe they're not even aware of. And when our parents get older, it means we visit them. You might have to help them get Medicaid. Medicaid. You might have to help them figure out where to live. That might mean that you put them in a nursing home. It might mean that they move in your guest bedroom. These are hard decisions. They're hard for children and they're hard for parents. But we honor them by affirming their dignity even as they near the end of their lives and become less able to care for themselves. James one twenty seven, James, the brother of Jesus, says, Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this. To visit orphans and widows in their affliction. Taking care of those without family is very close to the heart of God. Taking care of widows and orphans is close to the heart of God. So shame on us if a widow here at Orangewood feels uncared for and lonely. That's our responsibility as the family of God. This is close to my heart because my mom is a widow. Um, she lives in Nashville, And I loved her dearly and cared about her even before we lost my dad. But now that she is alone, now that she's a widow, I have this extra burden for her that I want to check up on her, not just to make sure that she has food and a place to live, but I want to see how she's doing. I want to hear if she's lonely. I want to hear if she has community at her church. And when I do that, I honor my mom, but I also honor my dad because that's what he wanted for my mom does the things that he talked to me about before he died. And I'm not saying this because I'm a great example. I'm saying this because my mom is an awesome mom and she's easy to honor. But I know the reality in a room this size is that a lot of you can't say the same about one of your parents. For some here this morning, the question that you ponder is, how do I honor a parent who is isn't honorable How do I honor a parent who hurt me deeply? How do I honor a parent who is abusive? And these questions deserve far more time than I'm able to give them, but I wanna say three things to you this morning. First, I wanna say, pray for yourself. Pray for healing and pray for God to show you the truth. Pray that God will set you free from that voice of shame that tells you this was your fault. You're bad. You're the reason this happened. Pray for the Holy Spirit to speak truth to you. Pray that God will, by his grace, give you the capacity to forgive your parent. Second, I want to say, pray for that parent, the one that hurt you, the one that abused you. Pray that God would show them their heart and change them. Pray that God would heal them from whatever hurt they experienced that caused them to treat you the way they did. And third, you honor your parents by being a child who breaks the cycle of abuse and lives the way God created you to be as a new human. (laughs) And I know sometimes difficult boundaries have to be set about how to see family, when to see them, if to see them. And let this be the guiding principle. What will give you the greatest capacity to love and honor that parent? Because honestly, some relationships are so toxic that the best way that you can love someone is to limit your interactions with them. So seek God and let wisdom be your guide. Um, But there's a Psalm on the screen and I I wanted to leave this with you if you are one of these children who's been hurt by a parent. The Psalmist says, O Lord, you hear the desire of the afflicted. You will strengthen their heart. You will incline your ear to do justice to the fatherless and the oppressed, so that man who is of the earth may strike terror no more. So you can see even the first house rule to be obedient to your parents, if you really dive into it, there's a lot more to it. In verse four, Paul shifts the focus to the fathers saying, fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. So what does it mean to provoke your child to anger? Um, It doesn't mean that you won't ever make your child angry. Lucy, who's 11 months old, gets angry at me if I don't let her like take a nosedive off the side of the couch or like suck on my shoe or something like that, you know? Um, so that's why Paul doesn't just say, don't do this. He says, bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Most little kids when they eat cookies for dinner and never eat their, and never like brush their teeth again. Um, but that wouldn't really be the most loving thing to do. And I think most of us get that. So clearly that isn't the point. So what does it mean to provoke your child to anger? It means to do something that will anger your child for the wrong reason. It won't be hard to tell when your child is angry. They make it really obvious. It's harder to tell if you provoked them to anger. And so I want you to ask yourself some questions. When you find that your child is angry, ask yourself, is the point I'm making, the rule I'm enforcing, something that is ultimately the best for my child? Am I in a bad mood? Am I being selfish? Am I angry myself? And I want to caution you, parents, don't be arbitrary. It's so damaging to kids. Kids need consistent, not just little kids. Adolescents, teenagers need consistent parents. One day you come home from church, I mean, from work, and and little John John's kicked back. He's watching TV. He's got his feet on the coffee table, and you rustle his head, and you go to the fridge, and you're like, I'm getting a Coke. You want one? How's your day? The next day you come home from work and you're in a horrible mood and you see John John doing the same thing and you yell at him and you say, get your feet off the coffee table. In fact, what are you doing watching TV? You do your homework before you watch TV. It's arbitrary. It's based on your mood and it's crazy making for John John. Which is it, dad? I can, I can't. Discipline and instruction will be consistent, not arbitrary and based on your mood. So, Maybe, fathers, maybe you need to ask yourself, am I trying to turn my kid into who I wish they would be? Or am I punishing my child for the mistakes that I made when I was a child? I am a mental health counselor, and several years ago, I had a teenage client come to me, and he was battling intense anxiety. And as I sat with him, it turns out that his dad made him play lacrosse, like, all the time. And his dad had had basically driven in this idea, you have to go to Harvard, but your grades aren't good enough to go to Harvard. This kid had over a 4.0. He said, your grades enough are not gonna get you into Harvard, so you have to be great at lacrosse too, and then maybe you'll get in and on, on an athletic scholarship. And I sat down with the dad, just trying to figure out what was going on here, and he starts telling me about how he... His parents wouldn't let him play football until he was in junior high. By that point, he was already behind. If his dad had let him play football when he was five, like the other kids, he would have played college ball. You see what's going on here? He was basically trying to live out his unfulfilled dreams through his kid and he was making himself and his kid miserable and giving his kid panic attacks. He was provoking his kid to anger. One day I asked the kid, do you like lacrosse? And he just stared. He just stared at the ground for like a long time and he said, "No one's ever asked me that." See, Lucy's only 11 months old and she's only now getting to the point that she knows when she's doing something wrong. And at this point, it's still pretty cute and funny when she does something wrong because she actually thinks it's really hilarious when I tell her no. She she crawls over to the cat's food bowl, and she likes to grab the food, and I go, Lucy, no, no, and she goes, (laughs) it's cute, but I I know that someday I'm going to fail her. Someday I'm going to try to conform her to my likeness instead of God's. I'm going to be moody and arbitrary and take things out on her, and I want to tell you something. A good parent is not someone who gets it right all the time. A good parent is someone who is humble and repentant when they get it wrong. My dad and I uh, had a weird relationship when I was in high school. I was a depressed, weird, rock and roll kid, and my dad didn't get it. And I didn't honor him, and he provoked me to anger because I didn't, cut my hair. I didn't dress like he wanted me to. I didn't do the things that he thought I was supposed to do. And so I felt like he wasn't proud of me, which is something that every son wants. They want their dad to be proud of him. I still, even though my dad's dead, I think, would dad be proud of me? But I want to tell you that in adulthood, my dad changed a lot. And before he died, He wept to me, not once, but multiple times and apologized to me for how he treated me when I was in high school. And he told me, I never told you I was proud of you, but I want you to know I went to work every day and I would tell him what a good drummer you were. And I would tell him about your band and I would tell him that your drumline won a contest. And it didn't undo the damage, but it meant so much to me. So dads, don't provoke your children to anger, but when you do, be humble and acknowledge it. That's how you instruct them in the way of the Lord. You show them that adult followers of Jesus aren't perfect people. They're sinners who are desperately, desperately in need of the gospel of Jesus Christ every day. That's how you lead them. So verse five, Paul gives the third house rule. Bond servants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ. Now I imagine most of you are like, okay, Husbands and wives, get it. The submit word's a little weird, but I'm following you. Children, parents, okay. But bond servants and masters, or your translation might even say slaves and masters. And it's like, ooh, what is this? I don't like this. What does this have to do with household? And Paul, why are you okay with this? Why didn't you just say, don't have slaves, right? Do you have these thoughts? Because I do. These are these are weird things to read, and it makes the culture gap between first century Rome and 2019 in Maitland, Florida. It makes that culture gap glaring. So, I'll briefly want to ex- explain three things to you: what slavery meant in first century Rome. I want to explain to you that the gospel and Paul are not pro slavery, and I want to. Um, tell you what this would have meant to the first century Roman household. So follow me here. Slavery in first century Rome was different than what we think of when we think of the embarrassing, shameful past of the American slave trade in the 1800s, where people who even called themselves Christians and were fueled by this very passage would basically kidnap and buy and sell people who were created in the image of God. And I'm not saying that the bond servants and the slaves in Paul's day, I'm not saying it was okay, but I'm saying it was different. Slavery wasn't based on race or nationality. Some slaves were prisoners of war, but what was more common was the notion of the bond servant. And just so you know, this a Greek word here, doulos, it can be translated as slave or bond servant. In those days, in first century Rome, there was no welfare system. There was no way to file bankruptcy. So if you owed a debt to someone and you couldn't pay it, your options were you could sell your children to slavery or you could sell yourself to slavery. And so basically you would either sell yourself to the person that you owed to or you would find some rich person who could pay your debt and you sold yourself to them. You became a bond servant to them. And the goal of every bond servant was that they would be able to earn that debt back. That's called manumission, And it was common. People did this all the time. Most bondservants didn't bond bondservants for their whole life. However, slaves and bondservants were still seen as property with very few rights. And so their masters, as Paul calls them, could beat them. They could kill them. No legal ramifications for that. I want you to hear me on this. In Paul's day, scholars believe that between 30 to 50 percent of the population were slaves. In first century Rome, 30 to 50 percent of the population were slaves. And so what that means is there were probably a large percentage of Paul's audience to this Ephesian letter who were either slaves or they owned slaves. So it absolutely had to do with the household. That's why Paul included bond servants and masters in the conversation with the household, because most households were, in one way connected to slavery. The New Testament scholar N.T. Wright says, Paul could no more envisage a world without slavery than we can envisage a world without electricity. Most of what the modern world takes for granted is impossible without electricity. And yet for most of the human history, it was unknown. In the same way, Paul's world worked through slaves taking a vital place in most most households, except in the very poor. So Paul was not pro-slavery. But when we think of the heroes of emancipation, we think of William Wilberforce. We think of Abraham Lincoln. We think of Martin Luther King Jr. who helped to end segregation and fought for civil rights. What these men had in common, aside from their Christian faith, is they had a system that they could work in. They had a democracy. The first century church did not have this. They had a dictator. Some of you have seen the movie Spartacus. It's about a slave uprising in this time. They make it look good in the movie, but what happened is they were all slaughtered and it actually made things worse for slaves. So Paul wanted to change slavery from the inside out, not through rebellion, but through love and submission. There's a little book in the back of the New Testament that we don't read very much called Philemon. And it's a letter that Paul wrote to the owner of a runaway bondservant. And Paul's charge to him is take this bondservant back, but not as a bondservant, as a brother. In Galatians 3.28, Paul says, there's neither Jew nor Greek, there's neither slave nor free. There's no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. There are no second-class citizens in the kingdom of God. So Paul, Jesus Christ they were not pro-slavery. Paul's not affirming the institution of slavery. He's saying there's a better way to overcome it than rebellion and bloodshed and violence. So let's look at what he says. In verse five, Paul says to the bond servants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ. As you would Christ. And this is the key. Just like the children are to obey their parents in the Lord, slaves are called to obey as they would Christ. Verses five through eight are one sentence to slaves. And in that one sentence, four different ways, Paul says, if you obey with a sincere heart, you are really serving the Lord. Not by the way of eye service, not just when they're looking. Any of the negative connotations that you think slaves might have was true of first century Roman slaves. They were often treated as property. They were beaten. They were spoken harshly to. And I want you to let yourself go there. I want you to put yourself in the place of a first century Roman slave. Imagine that you have an earthly master who believes he or she owns you. And maybe your master has a seven-year-old daughter who can boss you around and tell you to do arbitrary and pointless things just so that she can laugh. And if you don't do it, you get beaten And you don't get meals. The radical message that Paul gives these children of God is do it. Do it all. And don't just do it. Do it with care and excellence. And if you can do this, you're actually serving the Lord Jesus Christ and not man. Do you get how radical this is? This one little sentence that just makes us feel uncomfortable. Do you get? How subversive and countercultural and hard to swallow this was for the Ephesians. It's not how we would choose for the power and the vindication of the children of God to be seen. But it's not how the firstborn Son of God revealed himself to us, is it? In Matthew 20, Jesus says this You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and their great ones exercised authority over them it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the son of man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. What would life be like if for just one day, we could grasp this truth, this reality? What if we could see ourselves, as Paul says in verse 6, as bondservants to Christ? Think about what a bondservant is. Someone who owes a debt they can't pay. Someone who's able to pay it pays for them, and so you now serve them. Where the analogy breaks down is there's no manumission for us because we can never repay Jesus Christ for the debt he paid for us because there is nothing within us that can pay the debt that our sins are due. But we have a good master, and he doesn't call us slave. He doesn't call us bond servant. He calls us beloved. Our Lord is a good master. In verse 9, the fourth house rule, Paul addresses one sentence to masters and starts with this startling command. Masters, do the same. What? Serve my slave and do good to him? Yep. Because that's what Jesus did for you. And stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and that there is no partiality with him. When I worked at Restoration Hardware, I was bitter and resentful because I wasn't where I wanted to be, where I felt I deserved to be. And I imagine some of you can relate to that this morning. Maybe you're in high school and you keep having to do homework that feels pointless and like busy work to you. Maybe you're stuck in a job that you hate, but it's all you can get right now. Maybe your job's fine, but you know you deserve a promotion. Or maybe the job's fine, but you have a manager who's critical and harsh and just makes it horrible to work there. See, when I worked at Restoration Hardware, I thought I was serving a corporation or I thought I was serving the rich housewives of Nashville or something like that. So I served by the way of eye service. So when eyes were on me, I was loading lamps into cars. I was unboxing carpets or whatever. But when no one was looking, I learned to do this. And I'm not proud of that. I'm ashamed that I missed the opportunity to serve my Lord Jesus in the stockroom at Restoration Hardware. And what's crazy is the store manager, Bob, He's the best manager I've ever had. He never once asked me to do something that he wouldn't do himself. He got on his hands and knees and painted walls with me, scrubbed bathroom floors with me. One time I was wrapping up two really expensive end tables and ruined both of them and he should have fired me, but he didn't even reprimand me. He said, I know you learned from this. Bob would tell me I was doing a good job when we both knew I wasn't. And you know what it did? It made me want to work harder. It made me feel bad, it made me want to make him proud. If you find yourself in a position of authority, a dad, a teacher, a cop, president of a company, be a leader like Bob, be the one to be the first one to step in and do the menial task. Be a leader like Jesus and serve the people that you lead. It all has to do with authority. It, it started in chapter 5, 21, when Paul says, submit to one another. It all has to do with authority. And here's the thing. Romans 13 says that there's no authority except from God. That means if you have authority, it's not because you're better than anyone else. It's not because you did something to get there. It's because it was given to you by God. Brandy and I were teaching a class on marriage and we were talking about how they both had the task of the creational mandate to be fruitful and multiply they have different roles they have different positions and yet the man is created first and he's the one who named the animals and there's some authority there but it's not that he's better than the woman if you're in a position of authority it's not that you're better than those who are subservient to you you just have a different role so husbands love your wives as christ loved the church not by domineering and calling the shots Christ loves his bride by serving her and loving her sacrificially. Fathers, don't provoke your children to anger when you find that you're being moody and arbitrary. Be humble and repentant. And masters, do the same. If you find yourself in a position of authority, remember, there's no authority except from God. And know that he is both their master and yours and there's no partiality with him. If you're here and you're not a Christian, and this sounds a little bit crazy to you, submitting to people who are oppressive, treating people below you like you're serving them, it's because it's crazy. It's an upside down kingdom, and we want you to be part of it. So don't stop with this sermon. Keep seeking it out. Keep figuring out what this is about. And as we come to the table, maybe, maybe there's something that we need to confess here. So let's pray. God, thank you that because of the precious blood of Jesus Christ, we are considered part of your household. We are sons and daughters, no longer enemies, no longer slaves to sin, bond servants to a good master. Thank you for giving us direction for how to live in our households, thank you for the grace and the forgiveness that you offer when we so often fail. I pray that your hand would be on each of my brothers and sisters here as they go into their week. And Lord, we pray now as we come to the table that you would show us our hearts and reveal more of yourself to us. We pray all these things in the glorious name of Jesus Christ. Amen.